So, uh, to today, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Mark Galliotti, who is the CEO of the consultancy Mayak Intelligence, as well as an honorary professor at UCL's School of Savannah, Slavonic, and East European Studies. He's also a senior research associate at RUSI, and also with the Council on Geostrategy and the Institute of International Relations in Prague. He works on modern Russia with a particular focus on security-related topics, including organized crime, the intelligence services, the military, and the politics of national security governance. He read history at Robinson College, Cambridge, and took his doctorate in politics at the LSE. He has been head of history at Keele University, professor of global affairs at New York University, a Jean Monnet fellow at the European University Institute, and a senior research fellow at the FCO. He has held visiting academic posts at Rutgers Newark in the US, Charles University in Prague, and the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. He has also advised and given evidence to a wide range of bodies from the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee and the Native Parliamentary Assembly to Interpol and SHAPE. He is, of course, a prolific author. Recent books include The Weaponization of Everything with Yale, A Short History of Russia with Ebri last year, Russian Political Warfare, Moving Beyond the Hybrid with Bradlich in 2020, uh, and we need to talk about Putin, with, also with Ebri in 2019. He writes regularly in the press, most recently in the last weekend, Sunday Times. And he was originally, when we were uh, arranging this talk, supposed to speak on war versus conflict, changing Russian perceptions between the military and the civil, civ civilian security establishment, but I think there might be a bit of a change. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, delighted to be here, even if in the sort of most terrible of circumstances. It's quite a difficult thing to be trying to talk about war and conflict in abstract when it has been played out all too real in Ukraine at the moment. And also, this is a conflict which actually breaks the rules, not in terms of international law and so forth, I think we all can gather that one, but also the rules of actually how the Russian state thinks and thought about war and about conflict. So what I'm going to do is, and to an extent this is, a, this is sort of not together on the fly, so it may well be less coherent but more timely, that's a trade-off, than I might otherwise have, have hoped for. What I want to do is talk about precisely the, the way that both the military and the civilian-slash-spook national security establishment think about conflict. And then talk about precisely how what's, what's striking for me is the degree to which the Ukraine example demonstrates actually how little real impact that has when, and this is the sort of strap line I was thinking of, you know, autocracy meets technocracy. It's all very well having all kinds of splendid theories and deeply reasoned arguments in the military doctrinal press and round tables within the confines of the Security Council Secretariat about the best way to, to manage conflicts if the boss doesn't want to listen. And so in some ways that's going to be, I think, the sort of uh, the closing leitmotif. So anyway, let, me, let me talk a bit about the, the, the two approaches, first of all. Military. Should I mention there is no such thing as the Gerasimov Doctrine? That, that will be an albatross around my head, around my neck for a long time. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of nonsense that in the past has been written by some about how the Russians think about conflict and particularly the role of non-kinetic instruments in that conflict. And it, it's certainly true that, that the, you know, the Russian military, which does have a very, very intellectual approach 
to how it thinks about warfighting and how it structures itself in that line. I must remember that doctrine in Russian terms is not just a word. A military doctrine is a, doc is a document which is an absolutely foundational one from which all kinds of other decisions from procurement to personnel, all of those flow. Military doctrine is a very serious thing. And within the context of military doctrine, the Russian military identify a series of types of conflict, all the way from essentially what you might think of as potentialities, which can be dealt with by a variety of different instruments, whether it's diplomatic or political or indeed military show of force and such like, all the way through to major all-out conflicts between blocks. But again, they they take care to consider these and consider these as distinct <coughs> phenomena, each of which has to be approached in a different way. Since then, I mean, they as they, they have tried to think about how they can warfight in the modern age, we have indeed seen an increasing interest in the use of non-military means. And with it, a slight blurring as to quite what war means. Because as soon as you start thinking of non-military means as a core part of your arsenal, you start to raise complex philosophical questions, which of course, as we all know, generals love complex philosophical questions, um, about quite what is a war. You know, at what point is a cyber attack an act of war? At what point is, for example, massing large numbers of troops on another country's borders tantamount to an act of war? Now, obviously, the the Russians have done these things, but the Russians have also been trying to answer for themselves the questions of what would they consider an act of war? Would they consider it, you know, or what would they consider it if, let's say, I'm going to say NATO massed forces. Let's say some kind of fantasy NATO that could mass forces. Um, the NATO of Putin's nightmares. You know, if that mass forces on Russian borders, Russia's borders, where would that fit? in this chain of conflict type situations, and if so, what does that, as it were, unlock in terms of a Russian approach? So they have been thinking in all these terms. And particularly, they have begun to develop beyond the notions of what uh, particularly a sort of a, a military thinker called uh, Slipchenka calls non-contact war, which is basically the idea that future warfare is increasingly going to be fought not by close quarter battle, but by long range precision guided munitions and the like in which actually enemy forces may well never even be in visual contact with each other. Well, what we found is actually non-military means being increasingly kind of blurred in with that. There are different ways of reaching out and remotely bringing havoc to your enemy than just simply launching missiles and such like. You can also use other means. So we have seen a certain element of, of, of the Russians beginning to kind of try and cope with the notion of how wars can be fought by non-military means, but only up to a point. When it comes down to it, ultimately, you know, for all the talk about hybrid warfare, particular bugbear of mine, no war in history has ever not been hybrid. Um, for all about that sort of talk, when it comes down to it, the Russian military trains, arms, prepares to fight proper shooting wars and actually you know, conventional peer-to-peer -peer ones more often than not. Yes, they're perfectly comfortable with training and preparing for intervention operations and such like. They can send their paratroopers into Kazakhstan at 24 hours notice, well, less than 24 hours notice uh, under the terms of the CSTO as they did. They can seize a peninsula, 
when no one's watching, which they did, but they still regard their primary mission as being proper war. And for that, and I'll explain quite why I'm, I'm dwelling on this in a moment, for that they actually have a very clear structure of how this is meant to be managed. They had this shiny, fancy new national military command centre in the basements of the basement of the Defence Ministry building in Civil War, which is exactly what you'd expect if, if you've seen any films. Um, rooms full of huge screens where you have banks upon banks of people behind computer desks and such like, all the kind of things that glam the heart of, of, of any militarist autocrat or nine-year-old boy. Um, <laughs> But the point is, that centre, which was first properly stood up to coordinate the Crimean operation, that was basically its, its, its debut, isn't just a set of rooms. It isn't just the, one of the fastest uh, supercomputers, military supercomputers in the world. It represented a particular kind of command philosophy. Because the point is, this centre is a way of, I mean, it's not quite a fusion centre as we would understand it in Western terms. But it brings together, first of all, information from all over. They can tap into anything from a helmet camera of a special forces operator in the field, all the way through to real-time representations of how cyber attacks are processing. I have no idea how you put that into a visual form, but apparently they do. But it's also a way of coordinating different arms of the Russian government. Um, one, of the, one of the particular conceptual problems we in the West have in understanding the Russians often is the degree to which we are much, much more siloed. We have a much sharper distinction between peace and war. We have a much sharper distinction between, shall we say, government and military, public and private, all of these kind of distinctions. They are not necessarily immaterial to the Russians, but they are certainly much fuzzier and much, much more porous. Particularly, I mean, I think since 2013, 2014, Putin's Russia has been a war-fighting state. It has run on the principle that Russia is at war with an aggressive, hostile West. Believe it or not, to Putin and co, they are the defenders. They thought as much for years as they watched things like the Arab Spring Risings, the colored revolutions within post-Soviet Eurasia, which of course, and just in case, irony is now present, which of course were not natural organic risings by populations <coughs> unhappy with corrupt and unresponsive regimes. No, of course not. They were, they were managed from Langley. The real essence of hybrid war, is actually, that, as far as the Russians are concerned, we do it. We are the people who have these arcane measures, secret arts that can bring down governments, that can, I mean, this is how Gerasimov framed it in this now infamous article of his in uh, the military-industrial uh, military courier, um, that you know, within a matter of days, a perfectly functioning society can be brought into a state of chaos. Now that was bad enough, but when we did that to Ukraine, that was the point when Putin knew we were coming for him. Ukraine matters to the Russians. Matters to hell of a lot of the Ukrainians too, as we're discovering, as they're discovering. But I think from, from the point of view of someone like Putin, it is part of Russia's historic and cultural patrimony. 
It is not a truly independent state. <coughs> Kyiv is the mother of Russian cities. Doesn't stop them shelling the hell out of it. But nonetheless, there is clearly a certain matricidal tendency within the current Kremlin. But, but generally speaking, you know, Kyiv matters, and the idea is that Kyiv is being taken by the West. They have toppled a democratically elected leader in a coup and installed one that was willing to basically make of Ukraine a forward base for NATO. And it's quite interesting that we, we, we focus very much on NATO membership as being the... It's nice to have a soundtrack. Um, I'd like something a bit more, more dramatic. Um, we, we focus very much on NATO membership, which clearly Russia or Putin is... Just a little footnote there, by the way. Often I will fall into the habit of talking about Russia. We must remember this is Putin's war, not the Russians' war. And it's not just about the thousands of brave Russians who have been protesting against this war, despite the fact they know full well they're going to be arrested and quite possibly given a damn good beating in the Antozak or in the police station. But you know, many, many others are definitely are not in the view that this is their war. Anyway, from Putin's point of view, this was you know, a regime toppled by a coup, and it's not that he was so concerned about NATO membership as such. He was concerned about the presence of NATO forces. Time and again, in his various intemperate speeches, he talked about the presence of NATO forces, NATO missiles near Kharkiv that could hit Russian you know, soil within X number of minutes and so forth. His view was that this was basically Ukraine being prepared to become airstrip one, a forward base to NATO nestling in the bosom of Mother Russia. All, I should stress, all 99% paranoid conspiratorial nonsense. However, I think it's fair to say genuinely believed paranoid conspiratorial nonsense. So, I mean, in that context, what's happening in, in, in Ukraine matters, and that's why Russia has become a warfighting state in which basically every element of the state apparatus, and indeed society as a whole, can be so it's conscripted is the best way. This is not a totalitarianism that thinks that every element of society ought to be controlled by the state. But it does believe, as frankly most societies do when they feel they're in a total war, it does believe that any company, any individual, or any agency can be tapped on the shoulder and be told, we need, you know, that the state needs you to do something and you do it. And again, this, this national um, center is a way of managing that kind of a war because it brings in representatives from a whole variety of other agencies, the intelligence services, that the National Guard would provide a sort of a parallel internal security army within, within Russia. Um, you know, all the other elements, you know, ministries, it doesn't matter who they are, their representatives can be brought there, their data streams can be fed there. If it really matters to actually have real-time understanding of how many people are taking which train on the Moscow metro, and that's, an, that's, a, that's actually a specific example, by the way, they can plug into that should they need it. So it's all about sort of coordinating control. And what happens is, when, when there's a crisis that they feel may well involve the use of military force, they set up what's called a GBU, which is a combat management center, a group, rather. Um, there is a point, I know it's, it's a little bit tedious as we start moving into the bureaucracy of, of military management, but there is a point. Anyway, this GBU <laughs> is basically responsible for essentially bringing together the task force that is needed, whatever is involved making sure that task force has the resources that it needs, setting these specific objectives, but not actually running the operation. 
that is in the hands of the operational commanders, which if it's uh, on Russia's borders or within Russia, it will be actually within a context of a military district or small operations and army group. And if it's outside of Russia, such as in Syria, they set up a group of forces command. All very clear, all very sensible, all very rational, all very bureaucratic, but you know, all modern militaries, frankly, are bureaucracies these days, because you need to, because of all the, 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 the necessary elements. It's not just about simply sort of pointing your, your troops in a direction. You have to make sure that all the logistics are ready and everything else. As near as I can tell, and this is very, very early days, and these are distinctly um, difficult environments to actually get any kind of news from people in Moscow. As near as I can tell, the Gebeu for the Ukrainian operation was not set up until after the fateful Security Council meeting at which Putin bullied and badgered his senior security officials into rubber stamping his plan to recognize the people's republics. It's madness. According to the way that the Russians run things, that gave you should have been stood up as soon as there was the possibility. So in other words, it should have been actually at the start of the troop build-up a year ago. I'll come back to that in a moment. The point I'm making is this is this is a very rational, thoughtful I mean thoughtful in me thinking about things rather than considerate, armed forces structure, who have built um, a whole process of war fighting precisely to address problems that they know they tend to have, which is frankly, again, slightly caricaturing it, that the Russian military is much more teeth than tail. But they're much more about the warfighting capabilities than making sure they're all in the right place and they get fed and they have ammunition and fuel. And they understand that. And so they try to address it. So this is the kind of nature of, of how they, they were thinking about warfighting. And when they do fight a war, they would anticipate starting it with a morale, a massed rocket and air strike. Um, and which there was kind of, it, it wasn't massed, it was slightly half-hearted in, in, in Ukraine. I mean, serious and terrible, but, but not, not anything like what the Russians would normally have put out. And the, the key point is, in some ways, what in the West we sometimes call as commander's intent. The key point is the generals expect to be able to fight the war the way they want to fight the war, the way they train to fight the war. There's been a long tradition that the role of the boss is to set the objectives. And here I've got a quote from Marshal Konyev, who for my money was actually the better of the Russian marshals in World War II, even though it's the glory of Zhukov that gets all the credit. But anyway, Marshal Konyev, um, this is what I'm going to describe to him. Commander-in-chief and the high command sets the target, and we soldiers must divine the best means to hit it. Now, he was writing that just after the end of World War II. And the interesting thing is, I mean, this was actually, again, some notes I took when I was uh, meeting someone I knew who is, um, this is about, uh, this is 2016, um, who was a retired army officer, colonel, who had been in the General Staff's main operations directorate, which is his main thinking and commanding sort of element. And what he said is, the Kremlin understands that we're professionals we can achieve our goals if we're allowed to do so. Now, he was actually talking about Syria. 
because the Russians definitely felt Syria was a pretty good example of what we can do. The boss just told us to make sure that Assad doesn't fall, make sure you push back, and just make damn sure that the Americans don't have anything to crow about. And the military, let's be honest, did that very well. So they, they know how to fight wars. They think about it. They have a clear sense of a hierarchy of different wars and how to distinguish between them. And as we'll come to at the end, none of those elements have we seen in the Ukraine conflict. So let's talk about the, the civilian national security establishment, even though some of them kind of have general ranks. Um, in other words, the spooks as well. They have a rather different, but I would say quite complementary approach to, to war fighting. For the military, all the, all the non-kinetic stuff is really part of what in the West we might consider shaping operations. They're ways of making the battlefield the most um, <coughs> convenient for your operations. On the other hand, what we have seen emerging, particularly within the Secretariat of the Security Council, is a rather different notion of warfighting. One that actually, if anything, for my money, echoes what George Kennan, a sort of veteran American scholar diplomat and architect of American Cold War strategy, described as political war. In other words, the use of all means at a nation's disposal, illegal and illegal, overt and covert, economic, political, whatever, to achieve national goals short of war. So it's again a very, very sort of broad sort of concept. And this, I mean, this inevitably it plays into the legacy of the KGB's notion of what they call active measures. In other words, direct political operations, precisely to change the situation on the ground. Again, it reflects the way that the Russian intelligence services have never considered themselves just intelligence services the way we think of them, as first and foremost about just simply providing intelligence, providing the best truth to the political leadership. And even before Putin went on to the offensive, they considered themselves to be executive bodies, whose job is not just to gather intelligence, but to formulate policy, to advocate for that policy within the government circles, and then if need be to execute that policy and individuals sometimes. And in this context, you know, we, we have a tendency to draw misleading parallels. Take, for example, the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service. It is primarily a human intelligence service, increasingly with a bit of cyber attached, which one could say, well, that kind of maps roughly across to SIS, MI6. The thing is, again, these don't bear in mind the difference between a warfighting and a peacetime agency. For me, the better parallels would be things like the OSS and the SOE in World War II. Agencies that were specifically as much, or if not more, about sabotage and destruction as they were just about finding out what the hell is going on. And the, this constituency is very heavily represented within the Security Council Secretariat, which until about 2008 was um, a very boring and banal administrative fun uh, unit. The Security Council is the body which brings together all the key security-related figures, officials, within the Russian government. Now remember, security is very kind of capacious in how the Russians think of it. Um, but so it's everything from, obviously, people like ex-officio, like the Prime Minister and so forth, they're the head, Minister of Defence, Chief of the General Staff, Heads of Intelligence Services, that kind of thing. But also, it'll be the Deputy Prime Minister in charge of Defence Industrial Complex and that kind of thing. Um, the Security Council has never been a decision-making body. It is a bit, a bit about um, allowing the sort of individuals to express their views. 
It's also a lot about um, finding a body which can resolve interagency disputes, things like that. Um, that doesn't, in, in some way, necessarily seem to take a lot of administrative backup. So until 2008, the Security Council Secretariat was, as much as anything else, a place for superannuated ex-military and spook types to retire. It's a kind of semi-retirement place. You, know, you go there, you spend a few years, up your pension, you get to feel important, but you can wear a suit to work instead of a uniform. All very nice. Then in 2008, a new Security Council Secretary was appointed, Nikolai Patrushev, who, for my money, is the most dangerous man in Russia. But, I mean, and that's up against some pretty stiff competition, <laughs> that has to be said. <coughs> Nikolai Patrushev, um, the hawkiest of the hawks. Um, he is ex-KGB, then continued on within the, the sort of successor agencies, headed the FSB's Economic Crime uh, Directorate, which, so what? Um, everyone who has actually become director of the FSB has served as head of the Economic Crime Directorate. Why? Because that's where you make the money, <coughs> and that's where you find out where all the bodies are buried. Um, it really is the one where, you know, I mean, it, it, that's, that's, if you, if that's the, um, the perfect um, blackmailer's position. Anyway, so, so he's like, and, and he, it, it's clear that he actually believes a lot of the most crazy, batshit things that we sometimes get coming out of the credit. I've been trying to work for some years on, on the Secretariat because I, I thought it was important and interesting. Very hard to get people to, well, frankly, it's very hard to get people to admit they actually work specifically in the Secretariat. It's technically part of the wider presidential administration, even though in practice it's a semi autonomous body, it has its own gated sort of offices, um, different ID cards. You, you know, a presidential administration ID card will not get you in the Security Council offices, but vice versa, it will. Things like that. But nonetheless, you know, over the years I've, I've been able to get to speak to some former people within the Security Council Secretariat, or, I'm just calling the Secretariat now, um, or who work closely with them and so forth. And one of the questions I always ask them is, Patrick, does he really believe all this stuff? And what I say, what, what do I mean by all this stuff? Well, look, let me just talk, I mean, the, the, I could spend the next hour coming up with that, but I, I will spare you that. Let me just give one, which I think is, is really the, the doozy. There is this notion that the Russians have identified for certain that America has a long-term plan. I mean, with long-term, in other words, you know, going across different parties, different presidents, and so forth, and a long-term plan to dismember the Russian Federation in order to gain access to all the raw materials of Siberia. Now, how do they know that? Well, if you track back, where did this come from? This came from the claim of a Russian psychic who said, he had gone into Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's dreams, <laughs> and from those dreams divined this mystic and uh, malign plan against Russia. Um, we now have Patrushev essentially endorsing that view. <coughs> even though people know where that came from. And so I ask people, do you think he really believes that? And more often than not, the response I will get is, yes, I think he really does. 
The problem with Patrushev is not that he's a hawk. The problem is he is a smart, ascetic, hard-working hawk. This is not a man who's aiming to get in, make himself rich. I mean, you may damn sure his son gets rich, but that's, that's just what a good father does. Also, I should tell my father. Um, but, you know, he himself, you know, he is, he's much more like, actually, like a former KGB chief and the general secretary, Yuri Andropov. You know, he is, he's a hard-working zealot. Um, and he has consistently been, essentially, the voice in Putin's ear, constantly pushing him in that direction when there are others who tried to sort of put, pull him the other way. Again, I mean, I don't want to in any way exonerate Putin and things that's happened, but I think you know, we, we must appreciate the to which Patrushev is clearly being what we would think of as a radicalizing agent in this. But also, Patrushev completely changed the role of the, of the Secretariat. From being an essentially sort of sleepy, tedious little um, bureaucratic backwater, he turned it into a real powerhouse. How? By making sure that it was the Secretariat that actually got to dominate the bureaucracy of security. I'm not going to go into detail again because bureaucracy is intrinsically fairly dull. But it means that almost all that the almost all the um, paperwork, the reports, the briefings, any materials relating to anything to do with security will be routed through the Secretariat. And it's a pretty open secret that it is it will be winnowed to make sure that the, the right message goes through. And what's happened is, is that the Secretariat has, been, begun, has become the place where, for example, key um, documents like the military doctrine and so forth, where they are brokered. It has become the place where the key briefings happen. It has become the place where the key institutions resolve their disputes through meetings in the Secretariat offices presided over by Secretariat individuals. In some ways, it's the National Intelligence Council in the States or the Cabinet Office in the UK on steroids and with a very, very clear political agenda. And that's been absolutely crucial. And what has emerged from the, the Secretariat is, again, the, the, this kind of political war notion. Interestingly enough, one of the um, sort of key intellectual wellsprings behind it, it's, it's clear, is actually a chap by the name of Yevgeny Meissner who was a white Russian immigrant, who was actually writing in the 1930s. But he wrote, I mean, his, his notion, his, his big thing was um, subversion war. And let me just give a quote from one of his, his pieces. Subversion, the name of the Third World War. Future war will not be fought on the front lines, but throughout the territories of both opponents, because behind the front lines, Political, social, and economic fronts will appear. War will be fought in a four-dimensional space where the psyche of the combatant nations will serve as the fourth dimension. Now, on, on one level, I mean, this is a, published in the 19... Uh, sorry, it was published in, in 1960, but written in the 1930s. On one level, this is nothing new. The idea that war is actually fought in the morale of the population, I mean, that's, that's been around since whenever. And even more recently, I mean, one can look at Julio Duhay's notions about strategic bombardment as a way of breaking the will of the enemy and so forth. But particularly it's this idea of subversion. It's actually that you fight your war by subversion. And this, I think, crystallized the thinking within the Secretariat. Because it brings together several themes. First of all, it's, it, it's about how 
a relatively weak country, and the Russians are aware that compared with the West, when the West is united, that they are relatively weak on all the conventional indices of power. But it's a way in which a, re a relatively weak power can fight back and asymmetrically shift the conflict to where it is stronger. And it also has, all important in, in Putin's Kremlin, a nationalist angle. Because it's a Russian came up with this. And it sounds silly, but actually these things do matter when you're talking about a very small leadership, which increasingly nationalism is what counts as an ideology, cohering them together. So I think you know what, what's happened is and very much Patrushev has become the the advocate of, of this. And with it, this notion that essentially Russia is in a constant and conspiratorial <coughs> struggle. That this is a war that is forever, it is undeclared, it is obvious, if you look hard enough, which is the classic sort of thing. If you don't see it, it's because you're not looking hard enough. Um, and it, it uh, blends with how intelligence services tend to look at it. Again, another quote. Um, this is from Andrei Kortunov who is the chair of the Russian International Affairs Council, um, a liberal academic, but with very, very strong government connections to the foreign ministry. And in 2018, he said, it seems that we all, in East and West, are beginning to live according to the rules of wartime, when all means are good. And as a result, for example, a very important red line between politics and a special operation is practically erased. In other words, from, from Patrushev's point of view, they're all spetsoperatsi, they're all special operations, in other words, intelligence operations. That aggressive, high-tempo, subversive operations are how war is to be fought. And that's very much the, the Security Council's line. And they have pushed effort and resources into ensuring that Russia has these capabilities. And time and time again, when we look at a whole variety of operations, many of which it's worth noting, actually were deeply counterproductive, whether it's interference in political elections or whatever else. But actually, one can track back and see that either they initiated, they were initiated in the Security Council Secretariat, or most crucially, they, the Secretariat was the midwife, was the agency that took someone who had some quote-unquote bright, i.e. deeply stupid, but nonetheless appealing idea, and brought that person's ideas to the boss where it could be green-lighted. So, two very different senses of warfare, warfare. One that is essentially that war is something that is precisely it is declared, it is fought, and it follows a very clearly defined bureaucratized pattern. Another that says that war actually is constant and sneaky and opportunistic, but it always stays short of the kinetic. Well, except, except you're gunning down the old Chechen in Berlin. And then you have Ukraine. Now, the interesting thing about Ukraine is that it started, in many ways, as a classic political war operation. I mean, think about it. Up to that point, when the Russians actually crossed the border, well, crossed the border more than they already had in 2014, frankly, the Russians were winning. They had this huge force in being, which frankly they could maintain. Yeah, there was a cost, but the thing about authoritarian regimes is they can choose to spend the money on the things that they're the matter to them. It, it certainly wasn't in any way crippling cost to keep that force of whatever it was, like 150, 170, 190,000 troops around there. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian economy was tanking under the fear and pressure of that. 
It was a very, very effective economic warfare instrument. I won't name which, but certain Western governments were getting more and more rattled and were actually beginning to put pressure on Zelensky to make concessions to the Russians. It was actually a very you know, useful political weapon. And meanwhile, not only could the Russians and did the Russians unleash the whole panoply of other non-kinetic weapons against Ukraine, cyber attacks, essentially what we really call, say, terrorism, subversion, disinformation, etc. But there was such a monomaniacal fascination and uh, obsession with what was going on in Ukraine that, in fact, the Russians had pretty much free hand elsewhere. You know, Wagner Group mercenaries going into Mali after the French had withdrawn from there. Um, a whole variety of quite questionable other um, economic moves being made and so forth. It was brilliant up to that point. And then, of course, the decision was made to, to, to actually invade. And to be honest, I, I still don't think we can be absolutely sure that Putin 100% intended to invade all along. I don't know. I, on, I mean, Like most political analysts, I didn't think he was going to invade. I thought the odds were actually against him. I thought 30 to 40% chance of escalation, but the majority really wasn't. Because that's what common sense says. Common sense isn't always the best guide to what's going on. And we can talk in the Q&A if you want to talk about why, uh, why Putin did, did decide that, have to do that. But in, in any way, it's clear, though, that the, the final decision was, if not made, at least communicated in very short order. And the thing that strikes me is one of the reasons why this war is going so badly for Russia and look, we shouldn't assume that it's over. Wars take a long time. I mean, we're saying it's at lunchtime. I think that nowadays we are in the age in which we expect everything to play out really quickly. If you like a TV series, we binge watch it on Netflix. We don't bother waiting and watching it each week and so forth. Actually, the first two weeks of a war are not necessarily enough to tell us for certain what, what, how it's going to play out. But still, it is absolutely clear that the Russians have not had the result they intended. It seems to have been that the expectation was that Kiev would fall in two days and the operation would be over in two weeks. Not quite so much. Why is this? And I think the answer is actually that precisely that Putin himself, increasingly insulated from the policy process, the nuts and bolts of it, increasingly unwilling to listen to alternative perspectives, surrounded by people who increasingly fear him, and frankly, that extraordinary televised Security Council meeting at which he was openly, not just, it wasn't just that he was bullying his SVR chief, Marishkin. It's that he was smirking as he did so. And it transpired that this was not being televised live because other speeches were not included. So a decision was actually made to broadcast him bullying his intelligence chief. I mean, what kind of petty um, sociopath Anyway, um, so you know, actually, I think this is it. It, it. it is that Putin made particularly two crucial decisions. One is the issue of secrecy. So obsessed with he apparently with operational secrecy about not being willing to actually let anyone in on on the plan, except maybe a handful of very senior figures, until the very last minute. Which is ironic, given that Western intelligence services seem to have no problem saying, "Yep, this is going to happen. This is going to happen," and more or less was suggesting dates for it. But what it did mean was precisely that the Russian forces themselves 
were wholly unprepared for what they were then thrown in for. Unprepared in terms of maintenance and logistics, as we're discovering, but also, at least as importantly, unprepared psychologically. You know, most Russians do not regard the Ukrainians as neo-Nazi slavering enemies. Quite the opposite, these are their brothers and cousins. And they go in there, and exactly, you're finding yourself in a situation where, you know, grannies will be berating you in the town square. This is not what you expected to be doing. We've heard from, and okay, this is, we have to have some cautions about this, but we've heard from um, prisoners of war and people who just simply surrendered, defected, one could say, um, but again, that they, they thought they were just there on, on a military exercise and nothing was ready. So psychologically and, and in technical terms, the Russian forces were not ready for that operation. But I would say even more crucially was the extent to which Putin's own political assumptions and prejudices overlaid the entire operation. Remember, this is a man who makes no bones of the fact that, that as far as he's concerned, Ukraine does not exist as a country. It has no legitimacy, it has no identity. There is no such thing as the Ukrainian people. They are a hodgepodge of Russians and Poles and whatever else. He clearly genuinely believed that this government regime, as he would put it, would topple at the slightest, faintest first push. And that helps explain certain decisions that militarily make no sense at all. The fact that there wasn't this huge initial barrage in morale. Because if you think anyway, look, you're going to be taking over this country anyway, you're going to be imposing some kind of new puppet regime, you genuinely believe that a large proportion of the Ukrainian state apparatus will be willing, or could be willing, to obey that, that puppet government. Well, mass deaths might well get in the way of building that kind of political consensus. And, and maybe there's also a concern about how the West would think about it, and also about how Russians would think about it. The site, as is the case, of Russians shelling the mother of Russian cities itself is it's problematic enough. But more to the point, it also helps explain the otherwise quite uh, insane scene decisions <clears throat> to, for example, to send, I don't know, think that a couple of companies of paratroopers can just motor into the center of Kyiv, take over the government. Now, if you genuinely believe that basically the whole thing will collapse, well, then fine, that makes sense. I do not see any evidence that either the, the sort of the, the, the military nor actually the spooks genuinely thought that that was going to happen. But what do you do in that kind of situation? What do you do when someone has spent 22 years in power, has isolated them more and more, and is only willing to listen to a very limited range of people and a very limited range of views? Sometime back, I was talking to a couple of um, Russian army officers, 2016 maybe? I can't remember the exact date. <laughs> Prehistorian, I'm terrible with dates. Um, and, you know, there was the usual first bit of the kind of dancing round, they're thinking, what the hell is, 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 is a Westerner asking us about military stuff and so forth. So, right. But after a certain point, and, you know, with the usual you know, key research tool, that is to say, alcohol, um, <laughs> one can usually get, get beyond that. Um, and it was really quite interesting getting their perspective on Putin. On the one hand, look, one, one I'm not quite sure about, but certainly another one was absolutely what we might think of as a Putinist in the sense that he felt that Putin had saved the country from anarchy and irrelevance in the 1990s. On the other hand, what was quite interesting was both of them 
were uncomfortable with the kind of the macho cult of Putin. The, you know, I mean, particularly because I was, I was pointing at there, there was a calendar, you know, one of these calendars which had sort of, you know, um, picture of the month, you know, Putin in a tank, Putin firing a gun, Putin doing all these kind of macho and, and bubble military things. And remember, this is a guy who did his minimal basic reserve, reserve officer training while he was at university. Um, he ended up graduating as a junior lieutenant in the artillery. But because he then joined the KGB, that actually meant that he didn't have to do any more reserve training. He didn't have to do his um, you know, re refresher training or anything like that. He could have had he chosen to do so, but he chose not to. Who wants to go be a soldier when you're KGB? Um, and, and yes, they didn't like, you know, they, they were aware of the fact that actually Putin doesn't doesn't have any military experience or anything like that, and yet he's the commander-in-chief and he talks very bullishly on military things. And one of them, in a, a, a phrase that I think was, was more illustrative than, than perhaps elegant, he said, I wouldn't want a virgin telling me what to do on my wedding night. <laughs> and in some ways, this is precisely what's happening. And the, the kind of closing point I would make, as I said, I, I, apologize, I mean, I, 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 in part, this is, this is my own personal journey of trying to understand how a bunch of people who think so carefully about conflict can screw up so monumentally. So I apologize again, it's probably not as polished as I might like, but I can't help but think of the parallels in World War II, not least because that's the metaphor to which Putin constantly returns. Both Stalin and Hitler had no qualms about overruling their generals. And the disastrous initial performance of the Soviets under the of <coughs> Operation Barbarossa essentially reflected that Stalin was absolutely certain that there wasn't going to be an invasion yet, that he had until the next spring, and that therefore all this intelligence he was getting, all his guidance, even you know, people just deserting from the German lines across the border, this was all actually a plot to try and um, basically get the, the Soviets to act first, and you know, probably was, 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 was the Brits anyway. We are, it's, it's lovely actually to find that, is, is there someone who still thinks we matter? The Russians still think that we are their most subtle and sophisticated antagonists. It's, it's really very hardening. Um, but anyway, you know, so, so Stalin made a colossal blunder there, and it, it was almost a fatal blunder, and he disappeared for a while at the time. Thereafter, though, he learned his lesson. Yes, he obviously, political guidance, you know, political uh, control and decision-making, strategic decision-making was, was his job, but precisely his generals, marshals, got to decide actually how the war was fought. Hitler never learned that lesson. Hitler continued to micromanage whenever he felt like it, to intervene in political, economic, um, and obviously battlefield decision-making. One of them ended up one of the great world leaders, or the head of a superpower. The other one ended up dead in a bunker. I don't think it's going to be that dramatic either way, Putin. But it will be interesting as to whether or not he's willing to accept there might have been a mistake made and learn from it, or not. I have a feeling not, but that's just my own guess. Okay, I have finished rambling on. Uh, I would much rather now throw it open to comments, questions, furious rebuttals. Well, thank you so much. That we've all learned so much today. I think um, just coming up with my notes, I just set the context with 
a really uh, thorough discussion of the national security decision making and the infrastructure that they've got there, and then brought up to the present day with the intensification of the, the war in Ukraine, as well as some of the misguided assumptions underpinning the decision making there. Um, and as well, you've done it all only a cursory glance to your notes, which is very impressive. So uh, kudos there. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that this feels slightly odd um, to be discussing this topic in sunny Oxford uh, while war rages in wintry Ukraine. Um, but now I suppose it is exactly the time for us to be understanding and learning about this issue. We're really grateful to you for coming here today and sharing your insights. Thank you so much.